Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of the Spiritually Shitty Podcast. My name is Bree, and we're here to have an organic conversation about spirituality. Today I have the amazing Max Lang. He is a recent podcast entrepreneur, just like me. Um, he has a podcast he just started called You Are What You Read. So let's get going. How's it going? Doing well. Thanks for having me on, Bree. I'm glad to be the pilot episode for the Spiritually Shitty Podcast, which is probably the best name that I've heard out in quite some time. Yeah, thank yes. you. Yeah, man, I, I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, I was, I've been thinking for a while, you know, who do I want to have come on? And I was just kind of waiting and waiting to see who would kind of come across my path. And, and then you kind of popped up and, and there you were. And I remember first meeting you, I think we were in Long Beach or LA or somewhere North and we were up there for an event and met few through a mutual friend. And we had walked on the beach and, and talked a little bit about your story and my story. And it was just a good vibe and a good connection. So I am so happy to have you here. And yeah, Spiritually Shitty, the name, um, I almost changed the name. I was super close to changing the name and it didn't feel quite right. And when I got the logo made and I saw it, I was like, oh, that's not quite right. And Spiritually Shitty just, I don't know. I don't even know when it came to me, but I think it's kind of funny. But it also, you know, it encompasses what I'm trying to do here, which is just hear people's spiritual experiences and their shitty experiences that got them to the spiritual experience. So, yeah, I'm excited. So tell me a little bit about your podcast. So my podcast is uh, it's me and, and a friend of mine, Luke, and uh, we we pick, we pick different uh, spiritual texts or philosophical texts and read the book in its entirety but we go chapter by chapter and each chapter that we've read live then we discuss and see how it correlates to our life to experiences being that we're both in recovery how it follows our recovery path but kind of past the set the sense of just kind of the the trauma behind it but literally how that chapter is making eliciting the feelings that are currently going on and how we can relate that to a spiritual path Right, so read Alan Watts, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. We've read Sadhguru. You know, we've we kind of those are our first three. Also, um, taking on other guests as my co my co host is moving to Portland, so it's going to just be me. But I'm going to be taking in different authors and spiritual teachers and leaders and just people. You know, because that's kind of my idea of a spiritual path is one of service. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that you have to be in some organized religion or some massive person or have this daily spiritual practice. If you exist on this earth and you have thought, right, you are contributing to the cosmos in my eyes. Right. And we've all lived through some form of experience that we can relate towards ancient spiritual texts to current texts. You know, so um, it's just something that, uh, that I, I love to read my whole life. I grew up without a TV and was forced to have a very wide literature knowledge from my family, but it didn't enhance my ability to read. And I love to read. It's been, it's what I do at night. I don't really watch a whole lot of TV. I do a lot of reading. And the only way I can actually understand what I'm reading is if I put it into correlation of what, what I'm going through. How is this 
whatever I'm reading, if it's Clifford the Big Red Dog or the Upanishads, like how does this apply to what I am currently doing and how can I use this this literature to enhance what's coming for me? You know, so that's been my major intent on starting the podcast was making that kind of widely available to people. Wow, that's super rad. I just love that. And that actually sparked an idea. I really want to have something that connects every episode to each other. And I wanted to do that with a question, but I wasn't quite sure which question it would be. So I think that question needs to be, what is your favorite book, you know, spiritual book, um, self-help book, any book that you feel like relates. Um, And I'm sure for you, you probably have quite a few favorite books. But right now, what is your What's the get down? The book that changed my life is Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. I read it when I was nine years old. Wow. After a super traumatic experience that I went through in organized religion. And my father had it. And I just picked it up and started to read it. And it changed my entire outlook on the situation that I was in. So that is probably by far my favorite book. It's something that I've read a total of 37 times now since I first picked it up. Almost yearly I read it or I listen to it or do like book studies on it, et cetera. And, uh, but going into other books that I'm also super into, I'm currently reading the Upanishads, which is one of the oldest texts known to mankind. Wow. And uh, I have I have it on audiobooks. I'm at work. I'm listening to it, but then I also have a hard copy. So then I kind of take the translator's notes into a different translation of it because it was written in in Sanskrit. It's just you know a language that's 6,500 years old. So there's lots of translations that have happened, and you get to see different points from different people. That's that's incredible. I can't believe you were reading books like that when you were nine years old. I love to read as well, and I, I read so many books growing up, but I was never exposed to any spiritual literature. It was all mostly novels, um, but I love that, and I think that, you know, you really are what you read. Correct. Um, and the more spiritual literature I've started to read, the more I've connected. Um, it's just another way for me to connect to spirit, and I think that that's um, really awesome that that's what your podcast centers around. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about tell me a little bit about how you grew up. What was it like? So, I grew up in northern New Mexico and uh I was adopted. I was through a, an adoption agency called Catholic Charity Services, which is you know, where all the Christians hid the babies that they didn't want to tell their parents about, essentially. <laughs> and uh that's that's exactly how I came to be. My mother got pregnant while she was in college and uh her family was very strict Christian. And uh, they, so she couldn't abort. So she hid for nine months and gave me to Catholic Charity Services. And I was put in the St. Francis Cathedral, which is like the, the epicenter of Catholicism in New Mexico in downtown Santa Fe. And uh, the family that adopted me, I was uh, 14 days when the adoption process started and I was fully adopted when I was three. So I went in between being in the home with my family to then going back to the group home. And uh, so the early life was very chaotic and confusing for me. But luckily, like, I don't remember a whole lot of it. But I was raised Catholic. Um, This 
the area that I was in, that I was raised in, was a very predominant and still very predominant Catholic uh, area in, in the state of New Mexico. And uh, you can't see me physically. You can, but people listening can't. I'm 6'6 and very white, and I was the only white kid around. Everyone else was Native American or Hispanic, so the roots of Catholicism from Inquisition times is Christian in those areas. And uh, it was it was kind of like the community. It was a camaraderie thing. Everybody, that was the one thing that we can kind of unite upon is that every Sunday we were in the same Catholic church. We were going to, to Bible study. We were doing all the same things. And uh, that was kind of what gave me a sense of community as, as a young kid. And uh, what kind of transpired was uh, I started to, you know, volunteer and be an altar boy and, you know, do the things a good Catholic boy would do, which is sin all week long and then go to confession and <laughs> be okay. And, uh, but what happened was when I was eight years old, um, I was raped by a priest, you know, and again, Damn. kind of follow the same story as a lot of Catholic little boys out there. And this is in the nineties when, that those allegations were just starting to come out and people were finally like kind of saying like, this is what's been going on for a long time. And, uh, I was a victim of that, but the family that I was adopted into was a family that looked phenomenal on paper, but very aberrated at home. And there's a, a long history of addiction in my family, abuse and, uh, my parents separated and I was kind of taught that if something like that happened, you could just kind of be quiet about it. Yeah. You know, we just don't talk about things like that. You're, I'd be basically in, in my mother's eyes, it was, if I ever talked about it, I was putting down the church and the church was like her only safe place. So I was basically invalidating what she believed. If I talked about a priest doing the things that he did to me. So I learned just to keep my mouth shut and put a smile on and still went to church every single Sunday and Wednesday I was in, in Bible study and, you know, catechism and went through all the sacraments in a, in a religion that I just didn't have any faith in. Yeah. Did that, did what happened to you change your relationship with God? It didn't. So this is the weird thing that I've talked with other people that have had very similar experiences. And that's usually like traditionally what they say is that it changed my, my relationship with God. I understood at a very young age that God isn't represented in one person. If I put all of that attention, it would be in my eyes, my father was Superman, but my father also did heroin and also cheated on my mom repeatedly. So I understood that people in, in prestigious places made mistakes. So I didn't put that stake that the representative God in church was God. This is just a man who read a book and got ordained to say that he knew that book very well. And like I comprehended that. So I never really had a resentment towards God about it, but I did have a resentment towards the idea of organized religion. Because yeah. then what it made me do, to back up a second, I'm severely autistic and have Asperger's. So it made me really research what was going on and what 
what qualifies somebody to be a priest? What qualifies somebody to be a deacon? What qualifies someone to be a monsignor? You know, and moving up in, in kind of the ranks within that organization. You know, how does how does somebody that is capable of doing that achieve this level within your organization? You know, and then it led me to historically, and I got down like some really deep rabbit holes. And again, like I'm eight, nine, ten years old as I'm doing this research and like figuring out like the idea of the Catholic Church was more of a, a stronghold to control people than it was to actually promote the Word of God. Yeah. And so the second <laughs> yeah. I had that understanding, I let go of it. It's still, I still had, you know, the scar tissue. I still had a lot of damage that needed to be addressed. But what happened, like I said, with my favorite book is, is I came across the autobiography of a yogi. And then I found out, okay, there's other walks of life out there. Like Catholicism is very pr prominent in my little, you know, environment. But in reality, a billion people practice Eastern philosophy. Yeah. We don't even have a billion people in this country. Yeah. Again, I went back to numbers and statistics where that kept me comfortable. Like, okay, this can't be everywhere all at once. You know, it's, it's just here. And, uh, so I started to just kind of research and, and started to read and, and do different practices. My father got sober. He's, he's now 29 years. Nice. And he started to go to self-realization fellowship. Oh, I love, I love the self-realization fellowship. So I followed along and that's how I came across autobiography of a yogi. He just read it in his 11th step where that was one of his assignments from his sponsor. His sponsor was a Sikh from India. Like it was just kind of, I was in the right place at the right time when, when this happened. My yeah. dad was getting sober. He was changing his life around. And uh, I went on a, a retreat with uh, SRF in, in Colorado. And we were in Durango camping. And uh, a brother came up to me and was like, you, you understand that you're the only child here, right? And I was like, yeah, he's like, aren't you scared? And what, what do I have to be scared of? Like, I've had literally the most traumatic thing ever happened to me, already happened to me. You know, I've been raped by someone that's in the, in the community, like the person. Like, I don't really see where anything like worse can happen to me besides like getting murdered. And then I came from a very abusive family. I, my dad used to put hands on me and he's changing his life. So I had an understanding. I'm telling this man at 10 years old, like this is, I understand that people can change. Why do I have to be fearful if I'm comfortable within myself? And uh, he initiated me at that moment into Kriya Yoga. So I started attending SRF and started doing the lessons from Paramahansa Yogananda. And, you know, I followed that for a very long time and still practice it, but I have renounced my vows to SRF. Wow. That's wild. I didn't know all of that about you. And I just, the, the self-realization fellowship in Encinitas, that garden up there, that is a really significant place for me spiritually. It's one of the first places I ever, um, 
really felt a connection. Um, I was taken up there by a woman and she just took me up there because it was, you know, beautiful and it was a nice place to go. And, um, we were, I was working steps with a different person, but when we went there, I just like, I felt the presence of my grandmother and it was just a moment for me that I'll never forget. And I go back there often just to visit that place. And I just love I just love that whole thing. I haven't really got into, I have one of his books somewhere around here, but um, I haven't gotten into too far into any of the yogi stuff. I've like scratched the surface, you know, I've done yoga since I was about 15 years old, but I'm just now starting to read literature. Like the seven principles of yoga by Deepak is what I'm working on right now, but it takes me a long time to read. I read a chapter and it's just so dense and I'm like, dude, I need to like think about this for a while, but wow, that's, you know, that's really rad. So, so you're like 10 years old. I'm 10 years old and I made this life decision that I was going to do something different than everyone else. That all of my friends were Catholic. My mother was raised Presbyterian and converted to being a a Catholic. Um, When she got married to my father, my father was like a born again Catholic. Like my family history is very odd. Like my grandfather was raised in Nazi Germany and then came over to the United States and fought for the United States in World War II and like killed all of his childhood friends and came back all fucked up and just beat my dad senseless. And my grandmother was an alcoholic, but this is when if you were a woman and you were an alcoholic, you had brain damage. So they started to remove parts of your brain trying to cure the woman insanity. So wow. my, my grandmother had 60% of her brain removed. Jeez. And because she was bipolar, essentially. And she used alcohol to cope because they had they wouldn't give her any actual treatment. You know, and there's just like so he was he had this very weird understanding of Christianity. And uh when he moved to New Mexico, he got involved with the church and the the Catholics like brought him in and like Gave him jobs and really helped him out a lot. So he converted to be Catholic from being this like kind of limbo Christian, really not knowing what he was as as what he was raised in to being in the, my my mother was raised by a he was a, a teacher, but he was also a pastor. So she was raised reading the Bible and had this very strong core belief beneath her and us kids were just like, I don't know what to do because you have, <laughs> you both have such polar opposite views of the world in in the sake in the sense of religion, and uh, what it really brought us down to is my brother avoided religion at all costs. He still does. He has no connection. He has his own personal thing that he does. That he doesn't talk about, and that's perfectly fine too. Where I found a way to cope with the trauma that I was going through. And it also made me figure out I could cope with other traumas that I was going through. Watching my parents get divorced, be all the things that happened when we were really young. Feel that abandonment that I felt because I knew from a very young age that I was adopted and that my mother essentially hid me from like my biological family because she was scared. So like fear has been a huge part of my life 
from a very young age, like the sense of abandonment and fear and not wanting to let anybody down because I could feel like I'm going to be kicked away really quickly. And self-realization fellowship never made me feel that. So I finally had like a chemical change within me that showed me that I don't need to be connected to a person. I can be connected to an entity. Yeah. And the entity is never going to be, never going to leave me. Yeah. It's, it's everything around us. So don't get connected to people, get connected to, to the energy essentially. So when that changed my perspective, I still followed through with all the sacraments of Catholicism. You know, I've been confirmed first Holy Communion. Basically the last thing I need to do is get married in a Catholic church type thing. Never going to do that, but <laughs> it's... I, I walk those steps to appease my mother and, and to kind of just be part of the community because all my friends were Catholic. They all went to, you know, catechism and did the Catholic studies, et cetera. So that's – if I wanted to meet a girl, I'd like I would have to go to church. Her, fa her family expected me to go attend church with them. Or if I wanted to hang out with friends on the weekend and stay the night Saturday night, I got to go to church with them on Sunday morning. So I still did all of that. But in my own time, I was learning how to meditate um, you know, doing really amazing like breathing practices and that's where I got really involved in the power of breath and that that's in, in a Hindu terms of pranayama is our life force. Yeah. You know, it's the fire within us and you have to continually do that. And like I started watching people and like in the eighties, a very big phrase was like a, a put down was call somebody a mouth breather. Yeah. A mouth breather, like you're essentially bringing in toxins. Your nose is a filter. So when I learned how to properly breathe. I started to feel differently. So again, like it just affirmed that the Eastern ideology and the philosophy and what they were doing changed. I could feel a physical change, which then brought me to doing yoga and kind of just exploring that whole region and what they had to offer from Buddhism to Taoism to Hinduism to the small sect groups like Self-Realization Fellowship, Kriya Yoga, Raja Yoga, Hatha Yoga, Vinyasa, you know, Yin and uh, Yoga Nidra, which was like something that really connected with me. And, you know, I've been certified as, as a teacher in all of the above and currently in a Swami's I guess the best way to explain it without completely taking over the whole podcast is I'm, I'm in the process of entering the Swami order. Okay. I would be a monk. Dope. And it's, it's like the renunciation of all worldly possessions, chastity, chastity, and all, you know, it's an entire change. And I was offered this program by a friend in India and, uh, this is something that since the day in Boulder when I was initiated into Kriya Yoga, like this was a goal and never thought it would be possible because from nine to 33, like I've done a lot of damage and done a lot of things that they really frown upon and like wouldn't normally allow somebody that's lived the life that I've lived to enter this order. It's a very small sect of the entirety of humanity, it's about 0.6% of the entirety of humanity has had the chance to enter this order. Wow. So like to have this opportunity, 
I still haven't like fully confirmed on if I'm going to, I'm going to do all of the studying and the education on it, but I am not a hundred percent sure if I'm going to be initiated as a Swami or not, but like we have a beach here in San Diego that's named after him. Yeah. You know, and, and we have uh, some restaurants. We do. Swamis. Right. And that's all based out of people that came from SRF that were actual Swamis. Wow, that's that's all super rad. So, I mean, I want to hear about some of the dark parts. What okay. what happened? You know, what happened? Because you're, I hear like all this, you know, the stuff about the yogi stuff, and then like what was the in between between that and and starting that, and then now. Obviously, I know you're in recovery. Correct. So, what you know, what happened, and how did that change your your spirituality? I was introduced to Ritalin at a very young age. So okay. I also figured out that if I took something, I could focus better. Yeah, I feel that. You know, I, if I took this, being autistic and ADD and ADHD, like all of a sudden everything was channeled in one direction. So I used that not only for the purpose of what it was for to help me focus and stop punching kids in school and not be so hyperactive and kind of channel my energy in a proper direction or whatever. But what I also started to do is I started using it to meditate. I started using it to build things. I started to use it to go long walks and disappear and get out of, you know, the aberrated home. And that just allowed me to know that, like, I can achieve this through meditation, but I could get it really, really quick if I just took illicit substances. And if I took more, it worked even better. Yeah. So that kind of led me down the, the path of drugs at the same time. And like I never abandoned my spiritual practices throughout my entire addiction. I meditated wow. daily. I traveled the world. I went to India, I went to Tibet, I went to Pakistan, all, all over Europe and like was still on the path of searching, but I was doing it while shooting heroin. Damn, dude. I couldn't even get off the block. That's what <laughs> everybody had this problem. I didn't, I, I didn't belong where I was and I knew that. Yeah. I was so different that I just left. I didn't feel like that. I was drawn to stay connected to anybody there. Like at a really young age, people were dying around me. Whether it was gang violence, drug overdoses, going to jail. I'm from a very, very small town. And it just happens to be the at the time the overdose, the heroin overdose capital of the world. And this is a county of 30,000 people. It's one of the largest counties in the United States. So it's like per capita is what you have to base it off of. But everything, everybody owns a lot of property. Yeah. It's a small mountain town in the Rockies where there's just a lot of private airport airstrips that the cartel just drops shit off constantly. So like, that's just what I watch. So I just watch all these people. Like, I really don't want anything to do with you. Like I like what you have to supply me. Yeah. <laughs> but I really don't care about any of you. And I was so different being that I've been the tallest person my entire life. Like I was always known for other things other than being a part of. So it's like I wanted to go to places where people were like me, tall and white. <laughs> so that's when I went to your hometown. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Utah. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I did a lot of traveling. And I was also the kid that looked for – like I would read statistical you know, re research on where the most overdoses were happening and like I went there. I, t I wanted that drug. Whatever was killing people, like that's where I was going. And if it was in Trenton, New Jersey, I would leave Santa Fe and end up in Trenton, New Jersey somehow or New York City or whatever. And like I did a lot of traveling with my family as well. My dad got clean. He moved to New York City. So I spent a lot of time in the city. So I, the travel came along with my family. But I just kept on getting these opportunities where 
if you really think about it, a lot of people are like, hey, I want to do this. Like someone would be at a party and be like, I really want to go to India. And I'm like, so let's go to India. Yeah. Like, let's go hit a lick and then buy a plane ticket and we'll go to India. Hell yeah. Use the money to do something cool. Yeah. And like, from what I hear, like they have some really good opium there too. Like, and that was always <laughs> like a selling point. It's like, if I knew where I, if I could still get loaded, I would go. And I did. And I just got loaded on different substances. And sometimes I would use it to dry myself out. And sometimes I would use it to just get high, whatever. But I continued this path while using. And, uh, of course, that led me to go into a bunch of rehabs, and that led me to, in my early 20s, I was kind of, like, involved with the Church of Scientology for five and a half years. Whoa. Yeah. What? So, I was in a rehab, and they owned a rehab. Oh, my. Atlanta. <laughs> what the hell? In Warner Springs, California, I went to a facility called Narconon. Narconon. And they had... So, when we first met, we talked about St. George. Mm-hmm. And why, how I was homeless in St. George for a little while. It's because I had gotten high at that rehab and they kicked me out. And that rehab was in Caliente, Nevada. Okay. That makes sense. So that was what like, what brought me there kind of running around using-wise in your, your neck of the woods. But uh, yeah, it was – it's crazy. You were talking – on the podcast I just listened to with you that spawned this whole debate and conversation of us sitting down here today was you talked about Warren Jeffs, the hotel that he was marrying the underage women in Caliente, Nevada. The other half of that was owned by – it was being used by the Church of Scientology to detox kids off of fucking heroin. Wow. I was in that hotel while all of that shit was going on. Damn. Like – crazy shit like so i just kept on being put in these situations like so how did they get you like so what happened is my dad wanted me to get clean i was facing a lot of jail time i got caught up doing some really dumb things and uh a friend of his was like our president of Arcanon international or something like that who he went to school with and my father is a psychologist so he has some pretty deep connections into substance abuse and recovery and he found this place that boasted a 76% success rate <laughs> which ha ha yeah fucking jokes but they it, it was their sales people you know what I mean it's just like how does anybody get involved with a cult they have a really good sales team they know how to pitch this very very well <laughs> basically to convince him that this is where I needed to go. But the other thing they did is they also helped me with my legal situation. Oh, that's a good, like, that would get me. Big time. So I basically agreed to go there and at a minimum of five years is that I would finish their drug, their drug treatment program and then I would work for them and work at the, at the facility. And the facility was here in Warner Springs, California. And, uh, that's where I first went, but I also had a place in Newport. I got kicked out of Warner Springs, went to Newport, got kicked out of Newport, got sent to Caliente, Nevada, got kicked out of Caliente, Nevada, got sent down to uh, Harlingen, Texas. And these are all facilities that the Scientologists own. And I ended up making my way back to California. And the whole time, like, their program model is actually, like, just basically a better way to live. Like, they get you off the drugs and they teach you very simple steps to live a productive life. Like if they use that model, they took away the name L. Ron Hubbard and you put it in any other, like it would help a lot of people, but not promoting a 76% success rate and that you can control 
your addiction and that you control all you can start change and stop whatever you want like you put it into some terms of what's a reality and what can actually help somebody and their model actually would work but the fact of the matter is is that they just kind of preyed on people who are in really tough situations like myself facing legal charges and kind of had to be essentially court ordered to be there um and people who came from really rough pasts have no money third world countries like this is why scientology exists like they prey on the weak and they give them jobs and that's exactly what they did to me they made me an intern and within a year i was a contracted staff member making more money than i could ever think of making i was selling i was this is where things get a little bit more recovery orientated but i i was put on their sales team getting people in on the phones making ridiculous amounts of money and then became an executive of that facility so now i'm a an executive director for a facility i got 90 client 90 clients underneath me 110 staff and Jeez. i have no education wow i have scientology education that I, sounds I a little illegal a little bit i was so what they did is being that it's a 501c3 on religious pro on religion it's the state of california at the time allowed narconon to use their literature as education because there was check sheets that were involved and like it was very catered towards manipulating the underwriting of how to get a uh at the time it's what's the cdc or cdac certification it was called a ras a registered addiction specialist so i became a registered addiction specialist three so it's the equivalent of having a master's degree yeah through certification they paid for it all all I had to do is take a test. Wow. If I did specific check sheets of their own, which is just Scientology technology, like I got accredited. Wow. And then okay. I would come down to San Diego and take the RAS test and pass because it did have very close. But the other part about it is, is they hired somebody to come and essentially give us the answers. We do three days of cramming of what the, the, the identical test. Damn, dude, I've been in school for like two years for for a, that, a similar certification to that. Correct. That's wild. So they have you running this whole place. And how did you, you know, what were you thinking about Scientology? Like, were you like, this is sick, dude. Not Some guy really. on a... <laughs> okay, I, I had a really, I read Dianetics already. So like I had, I was like, this is fucking weird. Like the, just like any, any cult. The basics of it, like the fundamentals of it make sense. Yeah. That's how you sell people. You yeah, it's attractive. A, you make it attractive. You make it make sense. It's it's a a better way to live. Mm. You know, it's it's philanthropy, essentially, is how they promoted it. It's crazy the shit that that fucking psycho was doing. But then you get into the fact that L. Ron Hubbard's also a science fiction writer. The yeah. He wrote comic books and decided to develop a religion. Yeah. And it worked. It did. It did. Now he realized that he had celebrities interested in this. So now you have a celebrities. If you keep the celebrities, and if you notice in history, the failed cults, the Manson family, like it's based on you get one celebrity and you either fail or you thrive. It's the same thing with SRF. Once Lenin 
and George Harrison came over, like it became a world known faith. And you mean John Lennon? John Lennon. Okay, I didn't know that. The Beatles started to practice with Mahatma Yogananda. Wow. And like then you got Steve Jobs who one of the requirements to work at Apple was to read autobiography of a yogi. Wow. Now, there's a success of a cult using celebrities to their advantage. Same thing with Scientology. You get Tom Cruise, Christy Alley, all the top top end people in the early 80s, late 80s to come over and they promoted the fuck out of it. And this blew up. Yeah, it did. It's a whole thing. And then they knew that how do we keep people coming in? Go to the drug addicts. <laughs> Go to the people that have no idea what life's about. Yeah, people that have no family and no, family no connections. And, and no connection or have a sour taste in their mouth about organized religion. And, tell, and let's teach them that they have the control, that they don't need a god. Yep. That you can base your life around science, but not like traditional factual science. Like <laughs> fucking Xenu and the... Yeah, that shit is so weird, dude. That, like, it just blows my mind. Because, like, I grew up around, like, Mormons, Mormons, you know? And I thought that was bizarre from the gate. Like, Mm -hmm. I was like, this is so weird. Like, this dude just, like, found these gold plates randomly in the woods. And, And then there's, like, all these other ones, you know? Like, as I grew up, I started to, you know, like, learn about Scientology and different stuff. And I'm just like... Damn, people want to belong so bad. Like, we want to be loved and accepted so bad that we will believe the most heinous, crazy shit just so we can feel loved and accepted when all of that is available to us within. Correct. You know, like like through all of the things you've talked yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. So while I was there, I was still practicing. I was coming down to the, the Encinitas um, Ashram weekly. I was going to Hidden Valley Retreat in Escondido weekly. You know, like I still followed my own spiritual path, but I did see people getting better. I watched people come in with no direction and throughout the duration of their programs have a better understanding. So that's why I stayed so long. It wasn't for the Scientology. I didn't ever like really do anything besides what I was required to do to maintain my job and move up within the organization. So I've done auditing, I've done some weird fucking shit. I've been involved with some weird Scientology shit, <laughs> but it was, I never went to like the org because they don't call it a church. They call it an org and like fucking really sit down. Everything was done at the treatment center that I was at. Yeah. You know, and, like, and you were helping addicts, you correct. know? And that was my goal is I wanted to help people like me. And yeah. I was able to put it in a perspective from my understanding and all of my research outside of Scientology and like the life that I've lived. And apparently like I'm a very, I can explain things very well to people. I don't ever see it in myself, but like, I've moved up in organizations just like that one from my ability to take something that no one else can explain and explain it. Yeah. So I did that. So I made these fucking ridiculous things that you had to do to graduate this program make sense to somebody who came from who was full-blown Christian and knew that this was fucking Scientology and they're calling their parents every day, get me out of here. They're trying to fucking make me drink the Kool-Aid. And I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's make this make sense to you. You know, and then get them to a point where they could agree with it. Now, 
am I a master manipulator and a fucking real dope fiend at heart? Absolutely. And that's where that skill came from. Yeah. And, but I used it for good. So I started to see that my negative qualities could be used in a positive manner. And I really liked the money that was coming in. Like I made oh, more yeah. money than I could ever fathom making. I have nothing to show for it, but it was great at the time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so, but what happened was, is like, I started to, the higher I moved up in the organization, the more they wanted me to convert. The more they wanted me to keep moving up in the organization, going past just like the treatment center level now to like region area and just move up. And I didn't want to because that meant more Scientology training. And I was kind of like capped out with the amount of weird Scientology shit that I was willing to do. And uh, so then they started to kind of run this black PR scheme against me and what finally came down happening is like when I left there, I packed up all I could fit in my car and disappeared in the middle of the night. Damn. And left everything. You're like, fuck that two week notice. I'm out of here. What I was abducted in the two weeks prior to me leaving in the middle of the night and locked up at the sl- at the center in Hemet, California, and essentially like physically, mentally, emotionally abused. Damn. Agreed to admit to something that I didn't do. So they were trying to fuck with you to get you to jump on Correct. or drink the Kool-Aid, like you said. Correct. So you left in the middle of the night. Left in the middle of the night and drove back to New Mexico. Okay. And uh, then I opened up a, a detox center of my own in conjunction with Christus St. Vincent's Hospital in Santa Fe. Nice. And uh, was still on that path of wanting to help people, wanting to help people in the in the recovery field. And uh, using what was worth using from the program that I just dedicated five and a half years of my life to. Yeah. Taking what you could. Correct. You know, and and leaving the weird fucking Scientology bullshit. Because there's a lot of that. (laughs) Um, But a lot of it, like the books itself, like they they could make some sense. Um, and to put it in perspective, anybody that's listening like from 12 steps, like it was 12 steps, but in eight books without calling it the 12 steps and just reordering things around. Yeah. Like you addressed yourself. You learned how to be comfortable within yourself. You learned how to confront somebody. You, you addressed resentments. You, you made amends. You, you, you found like a, a spirituality of your own, you know, like there were some like really made sense stuff in there but the rest of it was fucking weird like give you an example i walked around a room for 14 days touching walls to get to a cognition with a a twin a partner giving me the command of touch that wall thank you touch that wall thank you touch that wall for 14 days that sounds like some something that would be repro that's like hypnosis correct it's creating a new groove okay i mean that makes sense in there (laughs) I like, you know, the idea of being able to create new neural pathways and neuroplasticity and all of that. But it seems like that's kind of the extreme. Absolutely. And like very weird. Very, very weird. You could just listen to like a specific meditation every day. You could just say the affirmation. You have one affirmation. You can say it every single day and you'll create a new. new Yeah. Like. Yes. You don't need to do all that. Wow. Yeah. So. Uh, so you opened it, your own detox center. 
I opened up my own detox center. It was, uh, I had 15 beds. It was a free program. You didn't need to have health insurance. You didn't need to pay anything. It was all county funded and the part, partially county funded, partially state funded. And then uh, the remainder of it was provided by the hospital. Nice. And all you had to do was show up to the ER and Perfect. say, I'm get cleared. It. You know, get cleared. They'd send you with some medication. I had lab techs. I had everybody that I needed. All with the funding, I was able to pay them a decent rate. And then um, I decided that I needed to start using again. Hey, <laughs> right? you so know, eight, so it happens, yeah. man. Right. What what led you to, to that conclusion? A woman. A woman. Yeah. A woman yeah. came into my life from that was I was with up at the Scientology facility and she was leaving a really messed up relationship and she needed a place to go and all this she got beat so bad that she had a brain injury Jesus. and she couldn't go home so I flew her from Atlanta to New Mexico and helped get her back up on her feet well the whole time she was using i knew she was using like i was giving her money to use and when i'm around heroin long enough i'm going to do heroin oh yeah it took three months of her you know using stealing from me making connections to me just being like fuck it let's do this you know yeah left my job left everything went from that facility to working at champ sporting goods in the mall selling shoes Whoa, that's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I get that. I get that. Yeah, and I mean, I, I held a job, like I still did everything. I was still going, like meditating and doing my thing, and but my, the rest of my life was falling apart. And uh, this is 2015. Now, August 15th, 2015 was a very pivotal point in my life. This particular night, we decided to go to the casino and try to make up enough money to buy an ounce of heroin to become heroin dealers again. Wow, dude, that <laughs> that is a good plan. It's a solid plan, right? That's like that's like the best plan I've ever heard. Right? Solid plan. We got like <laughs> we have like 100 bucks to our name and we're going to make it, right? Uh we have a bunch of speed, so we know we can stay up and the thing that we kind of forgot to think about was we'd already been up for like eight or nine days at this point. <laughs> we you left. guys should have been using that hundred bucks to get a room to take a nap. Right. <laughs> I, I had a house. Uh, we just didn't go home. Uh, <laughs> just kept on going from dealer to casino, dealer to casino, dealer to casino. Oh, that was get down for a little bit. And uh, we ended up leaving the casino. And this is in my hometown of Puaca, New Mexico. There's... Lots of reservations, so a bunch of casinos popped up all over the place. Like, directly across the street from the house that I grew up in. Like, well, not the street, like, some hills and a river. And then, like, US 285, which was, like, the one road that went through town, was a massive casino and resort. So, like, you could see it from the house that I grew up in. And there was an all-subs gas station. We pull, It's run down, abandoned now. We pull over to get well. I hit immediately because... I've always had really good veins. Same. She does not. Awful. Awful. BIA, Native American police, pull up behind us while she's trying to hit. She gets arrested. I don't get arrested. I've already used all my stuff and kind of dick move, but put my rig back in the bag that she is now in possession. She's like, of. I have no idea what's going on. I was like, dude, I just she's drove. sick. 
I was I was in the passenger seat. That was the other thing. They couldn't get me for a DUI because I was in the passenger seat. So like they couldn't prove anything for me, but they had her in possession. So she goes to jail. Now I call my dealer. I'm like, hey, Lex just went to jail. I need some money and some shit so I can get her out of jail. He's like, all right, bet. Give me two hours and you can come up and we'll get her out. No problem. I thought I went home and fell asleep for that two hours. I went home, fell asleep for maybe like six or seven minutes, hopped up, jumped in my truck. Well, I did a shot and then jumped in my truck and started to drive. Now, I don't know what happened, but I woke up three days later and somebody told me that I hit a semi-truck at 65 miles an hour. Damn. So I blacked out at the wheel, fell asleep, and drove for eight miles and at 65 miles an hour, went in the rear end of a gas tanker on the 599 bypass leaving Santa Fe going to Albuquerque. And uh, I had half my face ripped off, broke both of my legs, my pelvic bone, bunch of ribs, punctured both lungs, ruptured spleen, liver, like essentially should be dead. Like what I went through physically, like science doesn't prove one, why I function the way that I function and two, that I'm even alive. Yeah, man. That's wild. Did did it like it cause an explosion or? No. So, he had just unloaded 40,000 gallons of gas, of diesel. Okay, so he was empty. He was empty. I hit him so hard that I went through the reinforced bumper, through the first set of axles, into the second axle in the rear end of the truck. Jesus. Upon my impact, the driver, who is, you know, 40 feet away from the point of contact, broke his collarbone and his thumb on the steering wheel. From getting rear-ended. Getting rear-ended. Damn. And I was basically crushed and woke up in the hospital like, what's going on here? Fuck's everybody all. What's the hubbub about? Like, I didn't even understand, like, have any comprehension of what happened. Don't remember any part of it. Didn't know anything about Oh, yeah, you fucking, you were sleeping. I was out, full-blown. And, like, I remember the last thing was... The exit to get onto the freeway. And then the accident was eight miles away. So, like, I was just out for eight miles. And he was at a red light. And I was in my lane. Like, if that was a green light, I would have kept on cruising and probably made it to Albuquerque asleep. <laughs> like, that's probably what would have happened. But that was a red light and there was a gas tanker there. So, I had to relearn how to walk, talk, read, write, do everything all over again. How long did that take? Nine months. Nine months. Nine months and then... For me to be like up with a cane and like moving around. But the thing about it was, is this is where I really delve deeply into my spiritual path that I'm currently in. That moment alone proved to me that I am alive beyond scientific reasoning. Like statistically speaking, I shouldn't be alive. And if I am alive, like I shouldn't function. I didn't have a brain injury. My head went through a windshield into gas tanker my head was split open with no brain injury like if that's not like a higher power thing like i don't know what is yeah so, yeah that's that's like bizarre yeah it's it's wild not there was there's not a single doctor that looks at any bit of medical record for me like they just don't comp- comprehend how i function how i walk how i how i do anything 
Yeah. And, and I, your face looks good, too. Yeah, and I had it all put back together. It's really like you just your eyes a little like. Yeah, my eyes a little off. But little you cannot tell that it was that dramatic of an accident yeah, that happened to you. My whole face was peeled off. Oh. Like, it was wild. That's like some Grey's Anatomy shit. Correct. <laughs> and like a, the right doctors, like everything just happened to be in place. There was a, a, a neurosurgeon that was there from John Hopkins at UNM, at University of New Mexico Hospital, giving a lecture. He came and put my face back together. He, sh- he was supposed to be gone. The lecture was supposed to be the day before. He just happened to need to postpone it for an extra day. He happened to be there. Like the divine intervention of me being alive Everything had to be exactly as it was. And if one thing was off, like, I probably wouldn't have made it. Yeah. But everything stayed aligned. And, like, again, like, that's just, that's God, how God works in my life. Yes. I have defied odds many times. There's plenty of times throughout my usage that, again, just, like, don't, don't prove how I walked away from it. Other people weren't that lucky. You know, and I, for a long time, I, I put it to luck until that moment where I knew that I was going to walk. Every doctor told me I wasn't going to. Wow. That, that the communication from my brain to my legs just was never going to be the same. And with all the breaks that I had, that my legs wouldn't be able to support my weight. Now... I did write on it. This is like I really had really, really bad speech pattern at that time. And I wrote on a piece of paper, I don't know if you know this or not, but heroin's a miracle drug. <laughs> and my goal was to just do as much dope as I possibly could to not feel anything and to start to teach myself to walk again. I didn't do that because I had pharmaceutical grade. I didn't need heroin. I had every every pill known to man. If I wanted it, I could get it. They're basically just trying to make me comfortable because they wanted me to be a vegetable. But I had a yogi come and visit me. And Brother Chitananda said, you know that you're fine. Like I've seen your x-rays. I've seen everything. Like everything can be healed and you can walk and you can do this. Yeah. Just you need to have. Not he didn't say willpower, but for like a sense of it, like willpower to, to believe, just have faith that God will provide. Like yeah, God man. kept you alive for a reason, so don't allow this situation to to bring you down and just give up and be a vegetable. Nobody wants to be a vegetable, and if you're gonna do that, like he basically told me to kill myself. Like, what's the point of living a life where you can't truly exist? So I started to listen to him. I set goals for myself. I left the hospital, moved to Northwest Arkansas, was staying with my mother, and my spiritual practice got the deepest that it's ever been in a, in a personal exploration. I wasn't seeing anybody. I wasn't going out. I wasn't going to, you know, meditation services or anything like that. Like I was doing a lot of reading, but a lot of just sitting with myself and going within, and found this power within inside of myself that gave me the willingness to stand up, the willingness to take that first step, the willingness to fall because I fell a lot. And my goal was just to get up to be able to check the mail, which was maybe 150 yards away uphill on a rocky path. And the second that I was able to do that, 
I then went down the hill and went fishing. So like I gave <laughs> myself these little goals, like just get down to the dock and go fishing. Like that's all you got to do. And every time I felt like I couldn't, I could hear this little voice inside of me telling me I could. And that was my inner child. And that whole time I was mending this relationship that I had separated from unknowingly. And it wasn't until in recovery and some deep rooted therapy, like was I told that that whole time, like I was repairing the relationship with my inner child and my inner child wanted to go fishing, wanted to do all the things that I didn't do as a kid, all the things that I read about, all the things that I thought were like cool things to do. And then that just made me want to travel more. So I I went back to India. I went to Tibet, to Pakistan. And again, like I'm still using, still now in a pharmaceutical, I can just pick up a prescription and they'll send it to me anywhere in the world. But it made me see that I needed to get off of this. I needed to prove to myself that I didn't need painkillers to function. Yeah. So I started that process on my own and what happened was I my father got into a really bad bicycle accident. He lives in Encinitas. I left Arkansas, came out here and walked into my first NA meeting because my father was basically on his deathbed and I didn't know where else to go. And the nurse was like, here's a meeting. Wow. Go check this out. And I was at uh, Scripps uh, La Jolla and so I went to the Solana Beach meeting, and that's how I got it back into the, the rooms. But that again brought me back to SRF. Now I was able to attend services every Sunday. I was able to join in and talk with people who had an understanding of self-realization fellowship like I do. And the community along the coast here in San Diego of SRF is insane. You know, like that's where Yogananda did a lot of work. Like you can go sit in the room where he did all of his writings and wrote all of his books. And yeah. Like the like, like you said at the gardens, like the presence that are that you feel in those gardens is out of it's not part of this world, like at all. You know, so this is like it made me want to get clean. So I did. And uh that was that like pivotal moment is like I, my father lived by the way he just he's an idiot he's put this out there he wrecked a bicycle going 35 miles an hour because he thought he could jump from the asphalt over the curb onto the sidewalk he's 76 it didn't work busted his shit wide open but got a blood and bone infection and that was oh. what brought me out here he recovered. I was living with him, helping him get back up onto his feet, bringing him to service because he's still a member, and just reaffirmed. Like, I had this reconnection, not only with a faith that I could stand behind, but a community away from anything that I had experienced within NA. Yeah. I had, I had been parts of NA and AA earlier in life, but nothing like I felt here. San Diego has a different vibe. Yeah, it does. Like it's so different than anywhere else in the world that I've attended meetings, which has been in, in like 11 countries. And what happens here is so different. But I also had the, the spirituality of SRF, my father, you know, me, making new connections. And then 
December 20 or December 5th, 2020, my son died. And that threw my world around. And I kind of white knuckled, stay clean, but I stopped meditating. I stopped doing everything that I knew to do. And I relapsed. I had an attempt on my life. I did a shot of fentanyl. Again, like how many people do we know that have done fentanyl and never came back? Too many. Too many. I did a gram. Damn. One full shot. And I told myself, if I wake up in the morning, I'll go to a meeting. I'll get back on what I'm supposed to be doing. But I don't want to live. Yeah. Now, I felt that. I walked away from my kid when he was born. And I'd been fighting for the last seven years to get him back in my life. Okay. I never got that opportunity. I never got that opportunity to make that amends. I never got the opportunity to make the physical amends. A living amends is definitely possible, part of it. And I'm doing so much work on that currently that uh, it, it is what it is. But that moment, again, science doesn't prove why I'm alive. Yeah, you're alive for a reason, though. For, for some, there's for some a bigger you got purpose. there's a purpose. There's something going on, you know, and that's and that's where I am today. And that was, you know, 20 months ago. Wow. And I walked. It, I woke up 9 a.m. meeting. I, I identified as a newcomer. That was a Sunday morning. I went from that meeting and I went back over to the to the temple on J Street in Encinitas, and talked with uh, with one of the brothers and let him know what I had just done. So you didn't have to be hospitalized. Maybe I someone, was alone. maybe someone gave you some bunk shit. That, which very well could be. <laughs> you know, but like, but what are the chances Dude, that someone sells you some some bad I shit? Literally got like, it on the dark web. Oh yeah, dude, that shit was bunk for sure. From Afghanistan. <laughs> but so that's that's where ninety eight percent of fentanyl is manufactured. Yeah. So like. And again, China. And China, but like statistically <laughs> speaking, like. Statistically, all I needed after not using for almost four years, the smallest amount would have killed me. Yeah. You would have, you, yeah, the, that was like your plan. Yeah, that was the whole goal. And I, I find it so interesting that you were, you're like reparenting yourself, which is, I don't know, such a beautiful, painful process that is going to get talked about a lot on this podcast, mm -hmm. but reparenting yourself and then you're taking care, you're taking care of your dad and then your son passes and like you have this big like shifting moment and you're like ready to give up and then it's like 9 a.m. the next morning, you're like at the fellowship, going to a meeting, doing what you need to do, like and there's, you know, nothing that can explain that mm -mm. besides, like, something working within you. Like, at least the way I see it. I'm like, yeah, there's no... there's not a divine power, like, this is where anybody who refutes the idea of God, and if you have problems with the word God, like, get the fuck over it. It's a word. <laughs> get like, the fuck over it. It's just a word. It is just a word. It's, it's a word dictated to identify something greater than yourself. And this is in all religious texts. Yes. It, it's an agreed upon word through all religious texts. Absolutely. So we all have like different ideas when you come from like Christianity or different things. You have this punishing God. You have this. You have that. You have something that's more powerful than you. Whatever the fuck it is that you've gone through. 
and, and, and you're associating it to a word, right? It's not the word. Yeah. It's something within you that's the problem that you're attributing to a word. Exactly. Right? And that's why at a very young age, when I, after I had the experience that I had, like I didn't want to give the one comforting thing power to hurt me. Because the idea of God's energy. Yeah, absolutely. If I give everything outside of myself the power to hurt me, I'm going to be one scared individual. Yeah. Or the idea that this that we have to behave a certain way for God to love us is just I tell friends all the time that come to me and they're like, Oh, like I may like I feel guilty about this or I feel bad about that and I'm like, Why? Like like there is nothing you could do to make God not love you because God is love. Like it cannot not love you. It's not possible. It doesn't think like a human, like, oh, you didn't check these boxes. So now you get this punishment and you have to do this in order to, to be clean again. That's not, it's, it's like, it doesn't make sense. Like it never has made sense. No, right. It's because we, again, like I said earlier, <laughs> Christianity was developed to can control the masses. Yes, and it works so good. So good. It works so, so it well. Does. It still works so well. And, and and I really think that like if that's what works for you, then then that's a beautiful thing. Like because mm-hmm. I've seen people walk with Christ and use Christ as their deity and it's beautiful and they go Absolutely. to church and it's amazing and they are of service in that community. It's so good. Um, but it is not the only no. way. That's just absurd. Yeah, just, and- and like for myself, like I've read the Bible. I have a very good working understanding of the Bible. Yeah, and, same. And to have people try to use portions of that text to deem me wrong or to be sinful or that this is condemning me. Yeah. I tell them like, where, where do you get this? Yeah, exactly. Like, what are you talking about? But then like, with my travels around the world and my reading, I truly do believe in Jesus Christ. Me too, like absolutely. But I also believe in the 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 absent years that Christianity yeah. doesn't have, but that India and China and Tibet and Nepal do have record of Jesus. Yes. And there's a book if you ever want to read. It's called the Yoga of Jesus. That sounds great. And it was and it talks about his times from. The ages of 12 to 33. Yeah, I would love to hear about little Jesus. <laughs> little Jesus who, who left and went to India and hung out with the sages and gurus and learned yoga and learned the ancient religions of the world beyond Judaism and came back. And the only reason he came back is in like there's there's documentation of this. In caves and hermitages and in ashrams throughout the, throughout the basically Himalayan range, from Pakistan into India into China, where Yeshua mm-hmm. and and Isa, both Jesus in different languages, was there. This twelve-year-old who came in at fourteen because it took about two years to walk from Jerusalem to the first stop in sat with different spiritual leaders and learned and left saying, I need to go back and free my people. Like I need to get this out to people who don't have this, this knowledge and think that they're the center of the universe. Yeah. 
and he knew he was going to die. Like he knew he was going to be punished for this. And now we operate as a society like that we're going to be punished for speaking our truth, for living the way that we're, we're supposed to live. Not the way you want me to live, but the way that I'm, I'm divinely set to live. Yeah. You know, and what it all comes down to it, like, don't put it, all your eggs on somebody else's basket. Like, do some research for yourself. Yeah. Figure out and find the comfortability, whatever that is for you. Yeah. And that's, that's my whole story is I've searched my entire life to find what works for me, not what is dictated to work for me or what is supposed to work for me, but what actually truly works for me. Yeah. And you've remained open. Like you were even being a part of Scientology, you know, like that was unexpected. I did not expect, but like you, you remained open and you took what you could from each thing. And that's, that's exactly what I've done, you know, from a young age is just kind of experience whatever comes along. I've spent times in churches. I've spent times not in churches and I'm just very open. Mm -hmm. Like I would never want to be so sure of my ideas that I can't listen to what another human being's experiences. Correct. And that's really what this podcast is going to be all about yeah. is, lear- you know, learning, Hearing just learning. Experience. And so, damn, your story is just so, it's so impactful. I'm so glad that you have a podcast and it's about books because I am so ready to listen to it. And um, I just, I wanted to give you a book suggestion. I think that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with what's your favorite book at the beginning of each episode. And then I will provide a suggestion if I have one at the end. The suggestion I have is To Know God by Deepak Chopra. You've probably read it. I've read it. Yeah. And it's my favorite it's my absolute favorite because I read it at a time when I really needed – well, I actually listened to it. Yeah. Um, but I listened to it at a time when I really needed to hear it and, and it changed something in me um, spiritually. But um, what what's a, a piece of advice that you would give somebody that's maybe listening that doesn't really have a direction? That's like I don't know how to get – into a more spiritual mindset or I don't know where I'm going spiritually. What should I do? What would your advice be? Lose the definition that you have of spirituality. That whatever it is, if you if you feel that there's an, an, a hindrance towards your own personal connection, it's because you're basing it off of a misappropriated definition, right? So you may think that, like as an example, if I have somebody that's came to me that came from a really strict Christian background and they have that you can't do any harm, you can't sin, you can't, and if you do any of these things, like if, if I say, God damn, like I'm, I'm doomed, now I have to repent. If they have this really strict misunderstanding of what it means to be connected to God, take your shoes off and go stand directly with the earth. Yeah eliminate everything every judgment every understanding that you've ever had about anything and just feel right there's let go of what you've been told you're supposed to do and just feel what you're doing yeah being in the moment present time let go of all of this this mis misaligned information that you've had that may work for somebody else but it's not working for you because you can't find this connection and, and take a breath, feel, take your shoes off, connect yourself, ground yourself to what we physically sit and walk and drive on every single day. 
go in the ocean, swim out to where your feet don't touch the ground, and tell me if you have a choice. <laughs> That's a good one. Right? Go on a mountaintop and know that you're the only thing, the human around. But start to listen for every insect, every animal, the wind, and start to feel how insignificant you are as a physical being, but how significant your energy is to that ecosystem because it disturbs everything. But we look at it as our footprints coming in and damaging something. We're literally bringing an energy that isn't there that's riling them all up. Yeah. We brought something to this. You are part of this world, whether you like it or not. And you can be in a miserable existence of trying to figure something out or just let go and understand that you are who you are. And that's it. Just be, just exist. Stop trying to define it and just feel it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. That's that's good shit. Well, thank you. Thank you for for being my first interview. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I truly look forward to watching the growth of this. And uh, maybe we'll come back for a part two because there's so many more stories here. I know. I, I feel like there's a lot in there that we could have got into. There is. And, you know, this is I'm, – I'm really looking forward to see – where, where this podcast goes for you and the growth and maybe when we get to a point where you're you're running and you want to go in another direction i got fucking stories for days hell yeah all right guys there you have it that's the first episode of spiritually shitty thanks for listening and go check out max lang's podcast you are what you read it's available on all streaming pl platforms all streaming platforms guys and i'm going to be posting probably every two weeks we'll see how it goes thank you so much for listening and okay bye <laughs>